1: everybody and uh, thanks so much for joining us for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. And for those of you who are new to this, uh, here at Motorsport Magazine we do a podcast once a month with a legend from our sport and today we most certainly have one. We have travelled today, we have left our headquarters in London and come up to Northampton which is, as you know, is near Silverstone. Although I think all of us are agreed, we've been going to Silverstone for about 50 years, but we've never really come into Northampton. So last night, Nigel Roebuck and I had a little look around. And uh, anyway, here we are. And we're at the home of Tony Southgate. Now, many of you have uh, written into us with your questions, and we will be getting round to those um, during this programme. And I have with me, of course, Tony Southgate's book from drawing board to checkered flag. And I notice from your questions that many of you have read this book, which I have resting on my lap right now. And uh, with us today are Nigel Roback, uh, Simon Aaron, and of course our website editor, Ed Foster, who has transported all the recording equipment up to Northampton from London. And he's sitting in a corner making sure you can hear us. So Tony, uh, thank you very much for having us and welcome to our podcast.
0: Well, I very really pleased, I'm very pleased to have you. It's great.
1: Good. Um, let's start with um, we've just uh, come out of the Hungarian Grand Prix, which was thrilling. It was a fabulous race and had everything you could ever ask for. But it doesn't really hide the fact that Formula One has, has its problems. I mean, were you back there today, what, what would you be doing to it to, to make it a bit more exciting?
0: Uh, I must admit, I'm not a fan of modern Formula 1, or Le Mans for that matter. I don't like all these uh, gizmos. There's too many. I mean, you've got to be... The driver should drive the car rather than it basically being... He's almost told what to do. And I don't like that at all. And I mean, desperation gadgets, you know, like uh, dropping the wing so you can overtake somebody. I mean, that is crap. Uh, okay, if, if it enables people to overtake, well, it adds a bit of variety. Uh, however... Uh, yeah, I say I'm not uh, a fan of though, uh, the the modern cars, although I do watch the Grand Prix because the racing is still racing. And the weekend, of course, uh, was uh, it was a great race because there was lots of incidents. Absolutely. And uh, if that, on a track like Hungarian uh, ring where you can't overtake, you need incidents, don't you? Otherwise, uh, it's sure. pretty grim. Sure. Uh, no, uh, I, uh, although I'm a, I've been a great follower, pioneer, whatever you might call it, of aerodynamics because... Back in my day, you didn't go in for aerodynamics, but they didn't exist sort of, yeah. well, vaguely. Yeah. Uh, but I started in the 60s uh, getting into it and wings and all that sort of business. Uh, now, of course, it's totally out of control. I know they try to restrict it, but how can you restrict it? Uh, I, I went around, took a group of some 50 Medical around the, the Mercedes uh, uh, factory recently, and uh, uh, they told me they got two wind tunnels... And they go one of them is running all the time so 24 hours every day and they've got crews they've got more aerodynamics you can shake a stick at type of thing and they're all uh, uh, so they're running stuff all the time all the way through the races they're making adjustments to the car Mm. and it goes straight I mean they don't have to talk to the people back at base they know what's happening so they can make a little adjustment say oh you will need to go up or down a bit and that to me is crap because that's not racing, that's just big business. And yeah. uh, no, I know it is big business, but I don't think it necessarily makes it any better. And I think a dramatic reduction in the aero would, would be the first thing to do.
1: <laughs> no, I think, we're all, I think we're all agreed with you, actually, particularly when it comes to DRS. But we mustn't get Mr. Well, Robock no, on just DRS. Because- I just
0: wanted to mention at this point, because this is a man that Tony worked for. I was talking to Dan Gurney recently. He said, when I look back, the mistake we all made was wings. That was the beginning, that was the beginning of the rod. And, and, he, d- and he just <clears throat> said, because I'm afraid if you want to be completely on it, it's the aero that has ruined motor racing.
2: It's, it's quite interesting, it only a few years ago I was chatting to a team principal in the F1 paddock, um, probably about 2006, 2007, and he was saying one of the things that frustrated him massively was the amount of money that got spent on... What he considered to be completely pointless little, tiny little sculptures and a new front wing end plate, which was going to cost thirty or forty thousand pounds a time, and if you've got Pastor Maldonado in the car, I guess you get through ten a weekend. But he said it was just endless expense on something that was completely pointless to the overall show. It made no difference to the spectators whether you got that, and he said it was. But he felt powerless because there was nothing, because the way the support was structured, there was nothing he individually. It was able to do about it. And he said it was just this money going out of the door yeah. every day.
0: The first thing you do is just take the front wings off. None. Zero <laughs> yeah, front wing. I, I, it's I, dead I, I, simple. You just yeah. take the bloody thing off. Yeah. Uh, and then have, the car would then have to be made to balance. with The rear wing would be negligible. Okay, you would allowed to tolerate some sort of ground effect uh, because you can't uninvent it. it. Uh, but uh business of where the, the car literally rubbed the ground, uh, that's a bit sort of... Uh, marginal not many road cars do that no uh, so uh, uh, I think uh, uh, you know just take the front wing off boy that sort of man
1: let's let, can we just, um, just so we put all this into context Tony um, can you just give us a, a, a resume of how you got into designing racing cars because I think you wanted to work for Jaguar but the, they, they didn't let you in the door or something <laughs> just uh, I. Uh,
0: this is going back to school days of course uh, I went along uh, I was about to be about 16, I suppose, just then, which well, then the end of school for me. Uh, uh, I went on to Jaggers for uh, an interview um, and, uh, and, and a test. They were taken on, eight, I can't remember, not many, about 10 or 15 apprentices. And uh, when uh, the interview was reasonable enough, I suppose, but when it got to the exam, written exam, it was just maths. I thought, oh bloody hell! <laughs> it wasn't my best subject. Uh, I was better on lots of other uh, s- uh, science and engineering, yeah. uh, and of course that didn't come into it. So I didn't get uh, an apprenticeship there. I look back. I remember telling Egan that we we're leaning on the wing at one race meeting, on the uh, uh, you know before the race, and by then we were dominating or expected to win. And I, I said that. I said, I and chuckle. I said I ended up with the because racing cars is like the cream on the cake. And I ended up doing the, the Jaguar, which would be the cream on the cake, uh, and I couldn't even get a bloody apprenticeship there. <laughs> and, uh,
1: <laughs> now, that's, that's John Egan, of course, who ran that. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. OK. Um, but anyway, but you, you did go to Lola, and a lot of people um, of your generation in motor racing went to Lola, didn't they? It was a real sort of ground school, wasn't it?
0: Uh, well, I was the first drawing type, uh, in my day, it was in Bromley, Kent, and it was behind Rob Brushbrook's garage. His garage wasn't a service station, not a petrol station. It was like just for servicing cars, it was just a small building where you went in and had a new clutch fitted or something. And behind it was a, a, a fairly basic little building, most only about 2,000 feet at the most, and that was Lola's. And... Uh, in my book, there's a super photograph of the entrance to Lola's. The, from the side street, the, the main entrance went through a literally a terraced row of houses, <laughs> and just a hall, <laughs> and above it was this board saying Lola cars. I took a picture of that. Great. And the amazing thing was, if you went down that little alleyway to this little building, inside was a Formula One car, brand-new Formula One car.
1: Fantastic. Brand-new. Never
0: great. turned a wheel. Yeah. And I used to chuckle. I thought, well... Nowadays, uh, uh, <laughs> you can't I was comprehend say, it.
2: To, it wasn't quite like that when he took the 750 motor Club to Mercedes the other week, was it? <laughs> no,
0: no. <laughs> oh, no, that was, uh, that was good. Well, fortunately, Ross was there then. So this was about two years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ross was there, and of course, he used to be in the 750 Club uh, years and years ago. So he's quite enthusiastic. And uh, uh, so we had a, a range a good tour and whatever. And a few, I did know a few of the faces there, XTWR twr people and that. But I mean, the 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 difference now is night and day. You you can't go around an aircraft factory.
1: How did how did your first Le Mans Challenger come about? Because you you were in at the birth of the Ford GT Forty.
0: At Lola's uh, in sixty. Started as the Lola GT, didn't it? In sixty-two, beginning of sixty-two. Uh, and we were doing Formula Junior and, and this Formula One car came out there. Well that existed when I got there. It was just, hadn't run, it was got a 4 cylinder engine. It was just about ready, because Eric said, look at this, and he was like <laughs> in a corner, behind a, a, a partition. And I thought, bloody hell, I've landed in heaven. And uh, he, uh, uh, and so my first job was to put the V8 engine into that car, you know, do the mount, engine mounting thing, things, which was quite exciting. Um, uh, Lola's was a great place, because there you know, was only a handful of people. Uh, there was only about eight or nine full-time people. Oh, and then they had temporaries. People come in and, just and build cars or work, mate, weld them or something.
1: But that GT40 came out of the little Lola GT car, didn't it?
0: Yeah, that was, uh, was Stein say, 63. Right. Uh, I spent six months on that, which you know, in those days is a phenomenal amount of time, because you would uh, you'd do about three projects a year and don't forget the projects paid for everything so you had to make money so the drawing, you'd only perhaps draw 70% of the car, a lot of the stuff like oil tanks have been made uh, on the job in situ and bits like that, fuel tanks are always a bit like that so that uh, uh, the the drawing time was uh, dramatically uh, reduced compared to today uh, but the, the GT car yeah, t- I don't know where the idea came from, uh, Derek just said to me when well, they do this GT car with a big American engine. Oh, blimey, I didn't know anything <laughs> about So <coughs> I've never even seen an American engine. And, and it turns out idea it, it was what we called the Mark 6 because the Bromley cars are all Marks yeah. and then Slough cars are then types. Right. So you can tell which had made it Slough or, or Bromley. Right. And um, and it was uh, uh, the body work was uh, done by John Frayling, a stylist, and he used to do like clay modeling, can plonk it on the table and we'd look at it and say, come on, that looks good. He <laughs> did quite a few shapes before he arrived at that one. We never went near a wind tunnel, because uh, we didn't know they existed, I don't suppose, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and it was a powerful car, but it was very small and s- clean shaped, so uh, it didn't present an aero problem from what I can remember. We had, we had a Colotti gearbox, which gave a bit of trouble. But that Colotti was really the forerunner of Hewland. I mean, Hewlands are just copies of <coughs> of, uh, of Colotti's. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> we'll we'll we're,
1: we're, we're probably come to copying a little later in the in the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, not not not. <laughs> um, uh, you went to Brabham, Ron Toronack. What was he like? What was he like to work? Well, we're uh, jumping about here because yeah. because we could be. This could be a five-hour show, but it, it isn't. Yeah.
0: Well, the, the reason I went to Bram was the, the the Ford project took off. Uh, and Eric got this contract for two years for the uh, GT40, well, it was just a car then, and based on the Lola uh, Mark Six because they had the same engine because it was a godsend for Ford. me it's already exi- in existence. Mm. Uh, and it's actually run, we ran it, but it was all done on a shoestring, incredibly uh, low budget, as you can imagine. And um, when Ford came in, they sent over about three or four of their engineers and all in shiny suits and ties. And uh, of course, when they got to Bromley, they almost vomited (laughs) vomited, because the drawing office was a a hardboard well, a chipboard sort of building above the lathe and uh, about that big. So uh, uh, they moved the Slough uh, to keep I'm all happy. And I thought, well, this is no good. I was 22 then, 23, looked about 18. And oh, I'm not going to get a look in with this crowd because <coughs> they're all. Be- the only thing is, they didn't know anything about racing, really. They'd, uh, they'd been racing saloons, and all they do was basically put big wheels on them and stiffen the springs up. Mm. Yeah, great, those big American wallowy saloons. Uh, so they didn't really. They thought the drawings are all weird. Because the, well, you remember Lola's was quite progressive in those days, the designs and stuff. And so uh, I thought, well, bugger this. I'll I'll go down the road and see if there's anything going. In those days, you didn't know whether, I didn't know whether I was going to be in racing for long. It wasn't a profession that uh, you could guarantee a job. And uh, so I, uh, yeah, I went to Brabham's and Ron jumped at it because the, there were no people in those days with any sort of drawing experience, or well, certainly race guy experience. but he's it too difficult to work for?: He's okay. He's a good, good engineer, but boy was he difficult. Yeah. How? How? Because I mean, you're not the first person mm. to say that, <clears throat> but it just in what way was he was he awkward or, or, no, no, or basically he didn't too demanding?: draw. Or? He would get the, the, the draftsman to draw. There were two of us, Mike Hillman and myself in the office, uh, because I'd come from Lola's, I'd got experience, and, and that was it meant a, a hell of a lot in those days, so you knew what, what it was all about and so on, and I used to draw the whole car, he didn't just do a bit, he drew the whole bloody lot, and uh, he uh, would say, oh, I want some adjustable pedals, for example, or something like that, and you draw them up, and he said, say, I don't like them. <laughs> I'd say, well, okay, and to, so change it, yeah, you change it, He say, no, I don't like that, He's he used to no, I don't like that, no, no, and I remember one time I'd say, "Well, why don't you draw the f in things then?" And he says, "No, no, no, you know I can't." And I thought, "Well," <laughs> and it, it was that—that was, that was the sort of relationship you had. Right. However, as an engineer, he was ace. As production, uh, as the production uh, engineer for making race cars, he was the top of the pile.
1: The thing—the um, the move to America was a bit a bit. Well, I'm guessing was a big thing. I mean, moving to Gurney Eagle. Um, Winning the Indy 500. I mean, boy, th- I mean, this, for, for a man of your age and, and at that time, must have been an incredible experience. Right?
0: Uh, well, don't forget, we'd, at Lola's, there already won Indy the year before. Ah, right. In 66 we won it with Graham Hill. Oh, sorry, Graham I'll Hill yeah. and Jackie Stewart driving the cars. Yeah, Haas into them. Yeah. And, uh, well, I used to draw, draw the cars, because Eric didn't, uh, he would do, the. Ski- he would say, this is what it's going to be. And if there was anything and uh, layout and whatnot he would scheme that out and then let me get on with it and uh, it was a fairly sort of straightforward car uh, we did a couple of Indy cars uh, the 90 and the 92 I think it was called and um, anyway in 66 it won that's the year that that great big crash and yeah. all. I suppose being experienced or more experienced uh, uh, the likes of Graham and Stuart they could just drive through the wreckage uh, and the other lads in. but anyway, we won that. So obviously uh, this, I went to Guinness in the 67, 68 time. And um, so I, that was fresh in my head. So an Indy car was no problem. It wasn't as though I was drawing something new to me. Sure, sure. And so there was no problem. How did you get on with Dan? What Was your relationship good with Dan? Oh yeah, Dan was, uh, was a lovely man. Uh, Uh, Quite sort of shy, a shy man, quiet. uh, No, no, no problem. And he was uh, a fiddler. (laughs) He's renowned for fiddling, Uh, and come across that before. Uh, We were used to run all sorts of cars there. We had Can Am cars as well. We had a a Lola, and then he had a McLaren, and we used to modify them a bit, lighten them, and do. He used to like playing around with them. Um, But uh, the. Once again, the the Indy cars, and we made Formula 5000 as well, which is a similar car, only cheaper. Um, uh, they had to make money because that's what they yeah. lived off. So it's a bit like Lola's. So we'd make a 10 of them or 6 of them or something like that and sell them. So that when we got to Indy, the car that won Indy wasn't actually owned by AAR, it was a customer car, which is Anza's. And the two. uh Works. One's uh, one came second, which is Dan, and then the other one, Daniel Hill came uh, fourth.
2: Yeah. Did Did you have much direct contact with Bobby Unser And if so, what was he like to work with?
0: Uh, well, he's American, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and he's inc- he was. By for for a sort of a sort of a, a lowly Englishman, uh, he was in, came over as incredibly confident and arrogant. And uh, I remember after the race when he won it, we were having breakfast together, in the motel, uh, and he was full, well. Fair enough, he's going to be full of himself because that was the race. In those <laughs> days, Indy was very important. It was like a yeah, yeah. Monaco or something. And it, and I couldn't believe it when it went down the start line and stood there, and there's like four hundred thousand yeah. people there. Maybe. I've never seen so maybe a great bank of them. And the racing was actually pretty damn good. Although, then you go round and round and round, it was still good because everything happened quick. I mean, it was so dramatic the, the running of the race, yep. uh, you know, the, the yellows and bring him in and change. Oh, I couldn't keep up with it. But anyway, he, he was incredibly arrogant. But he was actually, uh, he's not a technical dry, driver, not from my point of view anyway. And he, uh, uh, but he's, like a lot of these Americans, they're very brave. They're sort of brave drivers, like the Fulmers and that, they're all very really yeah. brave, but not necessarily very technical. Well, Andretti was really like that.
1: You'd need to be, though, brave, wouldn't you? I mean, In
0: that medical racing, yes. <laughs> in those days, those dirt track things. Oh, yeah. And in fact, in the middle of all that, you were, you were, you were somewhat involved in the making of winning, weren't you? Because I'm, I'm sure in your book, yeah. don't you talk about Newman drifting through the, the workshop? They did some workshop scenes in the, in the factory. And they actually drove the IndyCar. He yeah. went, he drove one of the Eagle Indy cars, which was, he, he, that's obviously what got him hooked on racing, I guess, I mean, to actually, for a full start, just plunk in a, a current sort of Indy car and go around, okay, sedately, yeah. but it must've been a phenomenal thrill. And it, yeah, yeah, they used to, they did some scenes there, very basic sort of stuff, but he used to wander in to the drawing office in some scruffy overalls, trying to look like a mechanic, you know, yeah. dirt on his face and things like that. And he, uh, you know, look on the drawing board and say, you yeah, know, what you're doing type of thing. He so, well, this is the car. And he'd say, that's the back <laughs> or the front or something. That's what it's going to look like. Yeah, and he was, he was genuinely interested, yeah.
1: Fantastic life you've had, haven't you? It's amazing. Um, yeah, interesting, yeah. We, um, we, we, we I say, we've got to keep moving. And I, I, this is a bit I'd really like to know about, and I'm sure Simon and Nigel will have things to ask you as well. But, I mean, you went <laughs> you went to BRM which featured Mr. Louis Stanley. Uh, so uh,
0: And Mr. Raymond Mays.
1: <laughs> and Mr. Raymond Mays, absolutely. Um, tell us a bit about that, because that was another big change, wasn't it? I mean,
0: Well, I, the attraction of uh, BRM was the getting back into Form 1, because going to America, we, would, we had a Form 1 project, but uh, they ran out of money, so it was stopped. Uh, we actually made the chassis and had the engine ready and that sort of thing, but um, it, it it was stopped. And uh, so I carried on just concentrating on Indy cars, and even that took a bit of a dump because you couldn't go in for curved panels. Fabricating in America in those days was quite difficult. And we used to have stuff made in the UK and shipped out. Really? It was, Back oh, then it was as well. silly like that, yeah. Whereas, uh, so uh, it was all getting a bit sort of tight, and at about that time... Sixty-nine, uh, Surtees was over there doing uh, the Can-Am yeah. uh, at Riverside, which was local. And uh, he, he sort of tracked me down and said, uh, he was driving a BRM. He said, well, it's a hell of a mess over there and all this sort of thing, because they were chugging around near the back of the grill, grid, even though they got the likes of Surtees and Oliver driving. And so uh, he said he was in a position to offer me a job uh, design their new car, so, so I jumped at it. I bet you did. I didn't know anything about BRM, no, n- nothing. So it was quite interesting, quite open. And the interesting thing was the fact they made the whole car, which was yeah. other than Ferrari, that was it. Yeah. And that, that was quite attractive. Well, I actually enjoyed this stay at uh, uh, BRM, although it was a bit dramatic on occasion, there was a bit, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, it was very different, very different, old-fashioned.
1: I think the, 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 a lot of a lot of British fans, including me. I mean, I was I I joined the BRM supporters club. Um, there was something about it, and as you say, I mean, they built the whole car. But Louis Stanley was. I mean, did you have much contact with him or not, or were you hidden away doing what you were doing? And
0: oh no, he, he had his office, and uh, uh, he was there. <coughs> well, not I wouldn't say all the time, but a lot of the time was he was he? there, and uh, they were always having meetings and. Uh, <laughs> but yes, yeah, usually to do with it. the engine power, the favorite one, and it would go on and on and on. And uh, suddenly, looking back, the things were quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 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 he, he liked to be the, the big boss. He wasn't technical at all, right. but he had the authority uh, through his wife to run the show, because she yes. was the one right. who had the power, really. She was yeah. the, uh, the sister of the chap who owned it. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, he, he lucked in I suppose you could say but um, he wasn't what you call an asset he did have he was useful because when it came to sponsors I think yeah. they were sucked in by his pomp Yes. Uh, and uh they all thought every they all thought he was a lord or something I said, no he's not he's, he's <laughs> yeah, a no, bullshitter. in the states, in the states yeah. they certainly did oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, he did, and he didn't sort yeah. of try and dissuade them either no no but uh i've since read his stepdaughter's book which is uh, a bit of an eye yeah. opener. have you read no, that god blimey yeah. anyway yeah no it, no it is it is um problem. it it, it he, he did have the knack of chatting these, keeping these sponsors, getting these sponsors, because so, we got, yeah, we went to Yardley, went commercial straight away in 1970, and then two year, years later, when the contract finished, he we went to Marlborough. But once he got the sponsor, he wasn't interested in them, so he wouldn't butter them up and look after them very much, like nowadays. And the result is they they moved on. And interesting, both both times they went to McLaren. So uh, I reckon BRM should have got a cut on that on the uh, (laughs) sponsorship deals because we were providing them for McLaren.
2: Obviously, the BRM time uh, of interest, I'm sure, to most of us. Messrs Siffert and Rodriguez. I mean, both got fantastic sports car pedigrees, but they both won Formula One races as well. What what were they both like to deal with?
1: Ah.
0: well you're going back to a different sort of era now the the drivers uh, nowadays uh, um, basically they only do generally do just do form and they concentrate mm. but uh, um, in those days they did any sort of driving anything that earned of a few bob <laughs> uh, and uh, so uh, and the drivers were more characters like uh, uh, Petro had a Charisma, he was he got uh, something about him, he was m- like mystical. Uh, he didn't say very much, he just stood there and walked in and moved. Uh, it was quite fascinating. That's how I saw him. I don't know what he was out and about, he might be quite different, but uh, in, his de- in his deer stalker, yes. Oh, he loved to have a deer stalker and a, and, a, and a country jacket and yeah. things. And he had this Rolls Royce, which I didn't know he had a Rolls Royce, why right? suddenly his girlfriend was showing some photographs at some dinner. And he was posing next to his Rolls Royce. He was obviously very proud of it. And, I, and he was sitting next to me and I looked at this and I said, you didn't tell me you've got a Rolls Royce. I mean, BRM, you didn't earn anything. You, you didn't work there for the money. I mean, you, you couldn't afford a bike let alone a bloody Rolls Royce. <laughs> uh, and I was the highest paid person at uh, BRM. I got 2,300 pound a year. And he uh, was incredibly embarrassed when I showed him this photograph. He, he's almost trying to make excuses for owning it cuz he knew that to us it was like uh, unbelievable he, he could have a, what, a Rolls-Royce and you know, all that sort of thing <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah he's quite embarrassed by it but actually he's a super bloke you uh, incredibly popular with the um, mechanics everyone he didn't he wasn't demanding to just get in the car and drive it come in you make a couple of adjustments say great he said fast fantastic so okay <laughs> or he'd come in sometimes say the car's not so good and he'd have a fiddle and he'd come out and say, it's okay now. And that's it. And and, and qualifying, he'd never get all screwed up at qualifying. And I remember him saying to me, I said, well, you know, you're fifth on the grid. I thought we might be able to do better. And I he said, don't matter. He said, I'll overtake them all on the first lap. <laughs> and often he did. <laughs>
1: He was just breathtaking to watch there, wasn't he? Nigel and I were talking last night about the BOAC 500 in the rain in the Porsche. Oh, the yes. Guy's just, fib- it's just spellbinding to yeah. watch, wasn't oh, he? Yes. Yeah. it? Oh, yes. Yeah. It
0: always amazed me, though, that somebody brought up in Mexico should have had this extraordinary gift for, for driving in yeah. the wet. Yes. I mean, he was, yeah. he was amazing in the wet, wasn't he? Uh, well, I don't know how they do it. I had no idea how they did it. Yeah. That drives like that. He was, uh, to me, it's terrifying driving in the wet. <laughs> Cause as soon as the car starts sliding round, I I chicken out and sort of lift off. <laughs> so, but didn't blow them straight in. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, and what? And what about Siffert? Joe, Joe, he was unfortunately he was a bit overshadowed by Pedro because Pedro was the number one, yeah. and Joe was number two. Uh, Talent wise, well, I don't think there's any much in it, uh, to be honest. Uh, he was not what I call a non-technical driver as well, uh, and uh, but yeah, you know, he knew what he wanted. And he'd say you know if it, the car's bouncing around or something like that. I mean, the first time he said that was very funny. We we're at Alton Park because we used to do non championship races, remember in those days, mm-hmm. in the P160. And he came in and he said, uh, and like, This was one of the first conversations I think I'd ever had with him. He said, The car's jumping all over the place. I said, What? He says, It's jumping. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was very, very, very amusing. But it basically, it was just uh, shock settings and things. Uh, but um, uh, it, he fit into you, no problem, but I say he was a bit overshadowed. However, when Pedro got killed in that sports car accident, and and Joe took over immediately, he leapt to the the front. I think he was like second on the grid for the next time out. And what's it? Immediately, he went up a rung on the ladder. It's interesting. Um, well, that, he won uh, yeah. in Austria, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. You know, right afterwards. Oh yeah, he uh, he was he was a front runner then. You knew he was going to be a front runner. And uh, even at the, the Monza race, where we, you know, where they were the big snake, he was li- right up the front in that until he had some gear selection trouble. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't know why it. You do get that with drivers; they suddenly they put in the the hot seat and they respond.
1: Well, confidence is a huge thing, isn't it? I think.
0: Yeah, but he didn't exactly lack confidence. Uh, yeah. But uh, perhaps deep down, he thought Pedro could always just beat uh, him. Yeah. I don't know, uh, you, we never talk about things like that. But, uh, um. As, a,
1: as, a, as a, um, an engineer, w- what sort of driver did you want to have? Did you want to have a driver who was very, very, got very deeply involved in improving the car, in working on the car? Or, or for you, was it better if they just left that to you and they drove it as fast as it would go?
0: That's difficult because I can think of uh, a load of drivers would slot into the natural talent variety like uh, Jarrier he'd get in a car and drive it flat out in about three laps and then never go any quicker it doesn't matter what you did to the car he just had oozed natural talent and he would drive around any balance problem and that—that uh, that is I think that's fine if you're like a little private team but if you're like a works team trying to really make inroads and championships or something uh, you need a bit of a technical type driver. You can have the overboard, which is like John Surtees. Although I have great admiration for John, he was a bit overboard because he was a frustrated engineer, a designer. He's he better designer and engineer than anybody. I need to say that. No, no, he, he was. <laughs> he, he, he's. He, he was very good. He's very, very good. There, you could perhaps. That might be a little too far. So whether you can get... I've never had a driver that's been what you might call spot on. Either, they tend to be one or the other.
1: Actually, Simon did a great interview with Jarrier at the Goodwood members meeting where Jarrier hmm. drove the Shadow again on, uh, in the, that high air box.
0: Uh, and drove the wheels off it. And drove yeah. the wheels yeah. off yeah. it, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, they asked me to go down there. But I said, well, I fancy it, but it's a long way from Northampton. And I said, oh, sod it. <laughs> It's uh, it that's very disappointing. I was really yeah. hoping you yeah, would come. I had several people chasing me to go there. Uh, well, it is a long way. I mean, you've got to stay overnight to yeah. start with. Yeah. You go down there back in the days too yeah. much.
2: Yeah, yeah. And over and overcomplicated things by rather than flying directly from Nice to London, which he could very easily have done, he opted to go via Paris for some reason, which then caused him to miss his connection. And he yeah. turned up about three, which, is, which I think is very that's Jarrier, Very very
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, he is a. Um, he never had the dedication of the other drivers. He had the talent, mm. oozed talent, but uh, he could only concentrate for a while and then it became a bit boring. You know, Going down a test session with him was bad news. So he didn't really like it. <laughs> you know you know what was going to happen. If you did any change on the car, you've got to, you've got to do a run and come in and you need to note exactly what he says as soon as he stops. Uh, if you don't do any changes, and he goes out, he'll come in and he'll just say the same thing forever. he said, car's okay, car's okay. And I said, you just tell him it was understanding. Oh, it's okay now. <laughs> 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 he said that to me, uh, I think I mentioned in the book, and it was something I'd never come across before, and that's exactly what uh, Dijon had been understanding initially. And we were going quite quick there. That was the DN3, and uh, going pretty quick, and I... I said, well, what's happened to the... we at the debrief at the end of the practice. I said, what happened to that understeer you said? I said, oh, it's no problem. I drove round it. I said, how did you drive round it? He said, well, I just gave one turn, half a turn to the rear brakes. So as I went in the corner, it started to lock up the rear wheels, which cancelled out the understeer, and he drove that <laughs> in a neutral. <laughs> I thought, I said, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> that's well, that's the sort of thing he used to do. Yeah, Which, yeah. which is actually quite good logic, really, isn't it?
1: Oh, okay, T- if, if Tony.
0: Can I just say well, at one point you're saying you never about technical drivers. Was when you were at Lotus was 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 Mario not a technical driver? I call him. A, he's the closest to the semi-technical. I think uh, he may think he's quite technical by American standards. It could be, but he was extremely easy to get on with. He was a superb driver. I mean, if you want a driver, you would have him. Um, and you know he would give give you good feedback, which is what you want. You don't really all you want is good feedback. The design engineer, because uh, that's the same job in my day. You did both. Nowadays there's so many designers, so many engineers. It's untrue. But um, uh, he would come in, and uh, we'd perhaps go through a series of things near the end of practice. And I'd say, whoa, I think we you know there's not much else we can do now. And he said, okay, I guess it's balls on the hood time and he'd just go out and drive it and go quicker okay. and Patrese would do the same thing just you just say that's it I think we, there's nothing else we want to change because um, it would be too inconvenient so changing springs or something like that so I say, okay I'll just go, a bit, go out and try harder and they go out for a second quicker
1: mm. and they could do it as I, as I said at the beginning of the show um, we've got a lot of questions from our readers Tony oh. which is always very reassuring especially from your point of view <laughs> Um, And uh, the first one I'd like to take comes from Steve, who wants to know how was it uh, to work with Colin Chapman at what was pretty much the beginning of Ground Effects, wasn't it? Um, Can you tell us, I mean, everyone's interested in Chapman for lots of obvious reasons. Uh, Chapman, uh, I was fascinated
0: by him because, for me, he was the uh, greatest British designer by far. Even now, there's no one... Uh, I'm not I'm about winning races, like Newey wins all the races, but his cars are fairly what nicely developed aero packages. You went to Lotus, and there, cars would change dramatically. You know, if he wanted this, he wanted that. Uh, that's how Chapman liked. He, liked. he didn't like an ordinary car. He hated a car that looked very ordinary. I remember when the, the McLaren 23 came out, which was a sort of a... A working man's version of a Lotus Seventy Two. Uh, he, but no, nicely done. Nicely done, and all that sort. Of, they got a good team behind it, so it could work well. And it was winning. And we were looking at it one day. This is when it started uh, winning. And he said, "If I have to design a car like that in the future, I'll retire." That's the sort. Of, that's he would want it with uh, self-leveling suspension, anti-locking brakes, and all whatever gizmos he could think of. And that's how he worked on everything. Uh, the result was he had this incredible mind uh vastly superior to mine on on originality and things. I mean I had a little bit of originality he, he oozed it, and that was the attraction so when uh, they approached me because they were in, in the mire in seventy uh, seven they weren 't doing very well at all seventy six whatever it was um uh, i was uh, and at the time uh, shadow was' I'd run out of money and we weren 't going anywhere uh, I was sort of semi-flattered, I suppose, so, and I was fascinated by Chapman, so uh, I joined him on a short contract, a 15-month contract, uh, but it was a madhouse. Chapman was a total nutter. I mean, they, they say uh, it's very borderline between genius and madness, and he was it. He was right on the edge. In fact, on occasions, he was over the edge. Uh, but the whole place was like that, because it emanates from the boss. So Peter Wall was the same, and all the others are the same. So, until he got to Bob Dance, and he was the only stable, normal person going. But it, it's fascinating, but extremely difficult to work for.
1: Yeah, we could talk about that a lot, couldn't we? I mean, oh, yeah. all, a lot of those mechanics are still there, working on the classic team, Lotus. Oh,
0: yeah, suppose, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they all, although he, he was difficult to work for, he had... A massive following a great admiration because uh, you knew he he's going to do come up with something interesting or different and I remember in back in the early days of racing when I was in the 60s You used to look forward to seeing the new Lotus because yeah. they usually you get two or three models each year coming out Sports cars or singles either one there and you knew they're going to be interesting Whereas the other teams you weren't mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd look at them. And that's about it. But you were waiting I remember when I first went for an interview with Eric broadly uh, for Lola's, it was the race car show, 62 race car show, and I think it was a, to be the type, I don't know, a, lo- a mid-engine Lola, a Lotus just come out. Would it be the 18, I suppose? 62 S- uh, would it be yeah. at the... 25. 25, yeah. 24. 24. Oh, no, this was, a, this was a, a Formula Junior. Oh, okay. 20, Twen- it would be the lowest 20. 20, 20. Yes, and yes, he, said, he said, look at the lowest 20. Fantastic. And I went in there, and it was on a box set up high, so it was like eye level. And it looked stunning. Okay, nowadays you going at be fairly steady, but in those days it was like looking at at a space shuttle. It was stunning. I thought, bloody hell! And that's what you were waiting for because you knew he would set the pace every
1: time. Interesting. It's interesting. Yeah.
0: Andrew Ferguson once said to me about Chapman: the secret was to <laughs> to learn to ignore the mood swings.
1: <laughs> Is that was that fair? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh yes, he was incredibly moody. Incredibly moody and. Uh, Uh, Up and down. And he liked everyone to, you know, he wouldn't do any dirty work. He'd always get someone else like me, regular, to do the dirty work. And you realise why? Because he wanted to be seen as Mr. Nice Guy. And they're the dirty rotters over there have just sacked you, not me.
2: (laughs) Hiring for your small
0: business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
3: sort of thing I'm on shaky
1: ground with this question which comes from Ooh. Terry Jacob the reason I'm on shaky ground is because I don't know if he's right or not but here goes um, and he wants to ask you Tony is what was the thinking uh, that you had when you designed the BRM P 180 he says with extreme rear biased weight distribution uh, well that uh, the, the 160
0: was a very nicely balanced car but it didn't have a big enough advantage over the opposition. I mean, it was level pegging, I suppose, for the top stuff. Uh, and ideally, one of the cars was about another half a second quicker. Well, in those days, uh, we were running on uh, Firestone tires, and tire development was big because you got aero coming in. Aero was coming in, but tires were developing very rapidly. From we'd have originally on the uh, the first. Uh, BRN the uh, 53 it had 13-inch wheels, little wheels. It was the first car with all little wheels and big balloon tires. And then five minutes later, we had the 160, uh, which had uh, 15-inch wheels and uh, low-profile tires. It, there was a big development there. And what we were chasing was grip, of course, all the time, because we had limited yeah. aero grip, uh, very limited by modern standards. And so, uh, and in my case, I was always looking for traction and oversteer. I uh, Never had a problem with the front end of the car. Generally, uh, it was just the back. Uh, always chasing traction, and so we're talking about going to bigger wheels, even putting four wheels on the back. Uh, I had uh, like a you know a hill climb car, like a, a Prescott hill climb car. I put two rear wheels, uh, front wheels on the back because uh, it reduced the frontal area, but it gained track because they you had a greater tread pattern, uh, but it increased their height dramatically. Uh, but uh, that was a, a sort of a, just a one of the directions, but ch- the other route you could go chasing traction was actually putting more weight on the rear. Right. I was running sixty-five percent on the the one sixties and the one which is quite a chunk on the back. Sixty-five percent your static weight, well, that's with the driver and fuel and everything. Um, and I thought, right, what we know it's about sixty-eight percent. And I couldn't get this extra 3% on the back easily because the, the, the car wasn't really much to a BRM. So I thought, well, the only thing I could move is the bloody radiator. So I thought, right, I'll move the radiator. Uh, but I actually put it behind the back axle instead of the front of the axle. I did have a scheme for the in front, but I um, wish it was like Lotus did, you know, the 72s, so that type of thing. Um, but I was worried about the air. I was getting into air big then. We were actually going to do the wind tunnel And uh, at Imperial College and so I decided to go for rear radiators and that ended up putting a bit too much on the back it came out at uh, it was very difficult to calculate (laughs) all the pipes God knows what and it came out 2% more came out 70% on the rear which was over the top Uh, it really needed to be about 68 and the result was uh, it it, the car worked I but it didn't go any quicker than the 160 and, uh, that, of course, that's bad news. If you didn't go quick in your old car, no one's too, too excited. So, uh, uh, and at the same time, wings were coming in. And I had a three-element rear wing at the same time. your know, Aero was really coming. In, and the aero got so good, uh, it covered up, could cover up the traction problem. And then the tires, they stabilized a bit. And so it became, the, and four-wheel drive came out. So everyone said gotta go four-wheel drive i wasn't convinced about four-wheel drive because we had some knowledge of four-wheel drive br anchors uh, um they'd built one some years before yeah and uh mike Pilbean did it and he was still worked there yeah. and so he <coughs> knew a bit about it and if i found out they weren't running much on the front they had a very small split on the front axle i thought well it's hardly worth it it's like 20 percent so is it worth all that effort and the car was going to be heavy and so on so we we decided not to make a four-wheel uh, drive car, but I mean, everybody else went out, and of course, they didn't really work.
1: Well, there's another question which is car specific, and um, it seems to come from CC, um, and he's asking Tony, "Is um, what?" And his words are, "Why was a car as gorgeous as the Shadow DN one not a success?" And you are you are the man to answer this.
0: And <laughs> well, it's all in my book, <laughs> as well, they say. We, we were, but in that track, uh it's not a simple answer. Uh, one, uh, don't forget, the car was a brand new team, being going five minutes, and uh, literally here in Northampton, and we built in a temporary factory, all that sort of thing. It was amazing. We hadn't even got the cars finished on time and built. But we did. Uh, what knocked the, There was no test or development programme, negligible. Uh, what knocked that as well? Graham Hill appeared on the scene, and he wanted one, because he was starting his own team and of course don was flattered don Nichols, the owner was flattered so he sold him one and it was the embassy one which was fine the only trouble is uh he then had uh, a new fledgling team brand new trying to de- uh develop the uh their car on top of that you got a customer to uh, graham and you couldn't ignore him because he he wouldn't let you and on top of that we're doing can-am sports cars as yeah, well yeah. so put it all together and the development was very poor uh, i changed very early in the day i changed the nose made it four inches longer shoved it out the front to get a bit more on the front a split uh, and then later i changed the uh, wheelbase i had a spacer i was a great one for changing the wheelbase on the car about four inch space i used to put in which should make two percent difference on the weight in those days so uh, we did get around to that but the trouble was we Left behind, we started off reasonably, I and mean, that's fact, if you look at the records, they're quite impressive. The very first time it ran, which is South Africa, George fulmer had never driven a Formula One car. An American, classic American, brave driver, no, totally non-technical, very nice bloke, comes sixth. Yeah. Okay, the great positions were low, but he came sixth. I thought, that's pretty good. Oliver engine went or something like that. Uh, Ollie had the knack of not finishing. Uh, The next race, the Vex race, he comes third. Okay, there was problems with people up front, but that's motor racing. He still came third. And this was his second race, which I thought was bloody impressive. From then on, we went downhill. Uh, But we found out later in the year uh, why What some of this was. Uh, Don wasn't very popular with Goodyear. In those days, Goodyear would give out better tyres to the front runners, the top people, and so on. And um, we used to get what was left over, like the, the, the rock-hard ones, I suppose you call them. <laughs> uh, well, later in the year, uh, we the Carlas Pace, you remember the driver? Yeah, yeah, presumably, Pasha, yeah. whatever you like to call him. He, he, uh, he was very friendly with Charlie. Perhaps he's edging his bets, thought, well, this team might be going places. I'll look, see if I can get in there in the future. And Don, uh, once again, was flattered by this. And he was a great bloke, and he'd be around. And we did a test at Silverstone. This was after the Grand Prix. That year, um, what was it? 73. 73. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 73, uh, and he drove the DM1, but he came along with his own tyres from Brabham. I don't know how he got a set of tyres. He got a set of tyres anyway, and I think they painted out Goodyear or something like that and mounted them up and put them on the car, and he went two and a half seconds quicker than Oliver, which was equivalent to fifth on the grid in the Grand Prix. And suddenly we said, ah, now we know. We were getting duff tyres, basically. I'm not saying the car was perfect, but it a hell of a lot. Massive. It was two and a half seconds. I couldn't believe it. It was about 2.3 and 5 or well, something. It's
1: night and day, isn't it? Well,
0: yeah. I mean, well, I mean you just got... Trouble is, you can design a new car and it wouldn't go two seconds quicker. You'd build a new engine, it wouldn't go two seconds quicker. Yeah, know, everything was about half a second or one second. Now, if you get a second, you're really chuffed with a new car.
1: Sure, absolutely, yeah.
0: And... Uh, so that contributed uh, and uh, at the end of the year, uh, I then went and built the DN3 and we did a back-back test with DN3 and DN1 and, and Revson was driving both of them and he thought the uh, DN1 was quite good. <laughs> but of course, by then we were getting better tyres and also we got a, um, a more experienced driver so he would give us the feedback that went to here.
1: Okay, good. We're answering we're answering the questions that are being sent in, which is all good. Um, a lot of these people, by the way, have read your book. In fact, some of them have got signed copies. Wow. Oh. so um, oh. maybe a few more will fly off the shelves after this podcast goes out. Um, <coughs> we got to talk to you about um, arrows, haven't we? Because um, there was it was such a such a sort of political. Uh, court battles, you name it, it happened. Um, looking back on it, and I'm sure Simon and Nigel will have questions about this because they were also there at the time, but looking back on it, did it? Did you at any point think, God, I've had enough of this Formula One courtrooms and battles? And I mean, because it, there was a lot of flack fired at you guys, wasn't there, over that?
0: Uh, yeah, it was uh, Yes, a very bad, bad period. Obviously... Arrows uh, was a mistake. It shouldn't have happened um, As by I remember I went at a meeting with Don in town here in Northampton. We had dinner There's a pair of us and this is when uh, Oliver was going down the road and wants to start a new team and Reese was going everywhere He was supposedly going with him and, and there was only me left and uh, He knew I was uh, being ear- earmarked to go and he was pleading with me not to go uh, but I was easily led, I suppose you could say, by the others. And uh, I said, I'll have to, yeah, if they're all going, I'll have to go, that type of thing. God knows why I said that, but I did. And he was pleading with me, and Don Nichols doesn't plead with anybody. He's a sort of, well, he's ex CIA or something. He never denied it, but uh, uh, I was told he specialized in pushing people out of helicopters <laughs> in Korea. Uh, well, not him, but the outfit he worked for. Well, that's how they get the truth, don't they, from people. You get two of them in the helicopter, push one out and the other one spills the beans. And um, yeah, that would work, I can see. Yeah, I can there, see. I you? can understand that. I'd do that. I'd tell them whatever they wanted to know. <laughs> but uh, he, 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 so, and I came home and said to, to Sue that uh, what happened, and he said, that's a big mistake. He shouldn't have done that. And she was absolutely right. Because uh, if I'd have stayed, we'd have carried on away, okay. And we wouldn't have had all the aggro. The car would have been a lot better because we've had time to develop it and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, it's all a bit of a big mistake, you could say. Well,
1: but w- was it was it partly about money? I mean, the whole th- the, the the I mean, there've always been, haven't there? Motor racing's full of stories of people copying this and copying that and stealing this and stealing that. I mean, it's not that's not a new thing in motor racing. But did you feel hurt by some of that criticism?
0: Um, well, I always found it sort of a bit odd, because they I used to draw from home in those days. I, at least half my career has been spent at home drawing. So if you went into my office, which would be a bit stuck on the end of the house, uh, there'd be rolls of drawings everywhere. And there'd be Lotus drawings there and there something drawing there. And the cars I'd either worked on or the people that invariably didn't. I mean, for example, when I did Ford rally car, uh, and Toyota. I said, what do you want me to do with all the drawings? And they said, Oh will just keep them. We don't want them And that's it. I had the entire drawings for the RS 200 and they had a copy of them I do a film copy they'd have their copy and I would have mine because obviously had to as I'd work so the drawings are always there and so one day you're drawing one car and next day you're drawing another and the fact that you've got all the drawings there and to Anyone in the naive to think that you're not going to actually look at the drawings because they are your drawings. For Christ's sakes, all the trick stuff is in your head. All the all the roll centres, the the centre gravities, the wheel bases, the tracks, and the the coefficients of this, that, and the other, it's in your head. So they can't take that away from you. Uh, so based on that, everybody copies because you're not telling me that Ferrari don't go and buy that new lad uh, from where? Where did he come from? Who are you talking, James Allison? Yeah, Allison. What do they buy, Allison? Oh well, for? yes, of course. That's that's the way it it's, works. He, he doesn't yeah. have to come along with a uh, with a stick with all the info in his pocket. That. No, it's in his head. Yeah. The, the tricky stuff that makes the damn thing works in his head. And if he's got a really good brain, he's got a lot in his head. And so uh, that used to make me. I used to chuckle. I say, "Well, how can uh, on Friday I'm drawing a shadow and on Monday I'm drawing an arrow? Don't you think there might be something similar?" Mm-hmm. However, there there was too much similar because. Uh, we were hit with this uh, when eventually decided we, we'd, we'd start a new team we had three months to the first race and uh, we were told by Bernie we couldn't miss more than two races in the one year so we scrapped the first two races so the first race is going to be Brazil so that was the target get to Brazil And uh, so we had to produce a car to get to uh, Brazil ideally we wouldn't have done, started until say Europe in which case then sure. it'd been a, it could have been a more different as it was it's, it was a slightly improved dn nine better looking <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, this is a bit this is a, a very broad question but um it is very odd isn't it that arrows had so 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 little success i mean you would expect most teams to have some success um was, was there something actually fundamentally flawed with the whole operation or what? I mean...
0: Uh, well, yeah, it's not just Arrows. Shadow was the same. They had one victory. Uh, we had loads of times when we were running good. I mean, we, in, when the DM5 came in in 75, yeah. we were the, the team to beat yeah. for crying out loud. We went off to South America and Jerry was... Yeah. Blasting off into the distance, yeah. he was thirty seconds in the lead almost at one race. Yeah. Same when uh, the the uh, the uh, FA one, the yeah. Arrow at in South Africa. Oh, I, like, I was yeah. miles yeah. in the lead, yeah. and an engine went. The engine went because we didn't realise him. But it portrayed it was a very young driver, uh, a bit over enthusiastic. Although we got this big lead, instead of sort of say, backing off and says oh, I'll win by ten seconds or twenty seconds, uh, he cracked on flat out sort of thing, and he was changed because these are normal cars where you change gear and clutches and all that sort of thing. And to improve, to help the braking of the car, he changed down very early, so the engine basically over-revved, mm-hmm. but because of the rev limit, he assumed that he wouldn't damage it, but of course you can actually still go whizzing straight through to 11,000, uh, uh, through the rev limit, he would just go blah. <laughs> and he was doing this and eventually the engine quit. And uh, I mean, him crying. Uh, but we just... Mm. But that was a yeah, you know, we had a lot we had a quite a few of those and that, lots of quite good places over the years. But uh, I I was said if if the if Lotus not that they'd wanna run the DM five, but if you just transpose that kind to their organization, uh, they must have won the world championship. Because yeah. 'Cause they'd have kept the development going as well. Yeah. They had a big budget, they was had plenty of money, Lotus. Well, they did whatever they wanted, let's put it that way. And uh, uh, if it needed a wider this or a bigger that, they'd do it. Whereas that didn't happen, mm. really, Shano. In fact, Ric- I mean, Ricardo was very much the enfant terrible for a while, wasn't mm. he? I mean, the, I, I I remember um, Anderstorp that mm. year. He had, a, he had a big battle with Ronnie, and Ronnie rarely got upset. But after the race, he was, he was absolutely livid <laughs> with him. He just, you know... Oh, but who was yeah. the which was the first car legal car home oh, for that race? No. Ah, <laughs> and arrows. A one. It's true. Uh, no, was it the Fa one? Fa one, Fa one, uh, because the car in front was blatantly illegal, but because it was Bernie's car, nobody dared say anything. No.
2: Can I just, if we can just reverse back from arrows brave to shadows words. for um, for a couple of minutes. <laughs>
0: Well, i'm old now so it doesn't matter does it
2: <laughs> so if, I could, if you're just allowed to reverse back from arrows to shadow for a couple of minutes tom price yeah. personal, members of tom price and what he was like to work with
0: lovely man lovely man um he was not a technical driver but he had great feedback um if you changed anything he'd come back and tell you straight away what he had done uh which takes quite a bit of skill because I mean, you go around these guys, they're bouncing around and lurching around and screeching, and god knows what, and just come back and sort of say that shock absorber adjustment was a little bit better on the exit is quite amazing. Uh, he could do that sort of thing, and on top of that, he was incredibly dedicated, he was like a, a faithful dog, uh, he was always there. And uh, he wasn't not, not quite to be- like Jarrier then, oh no, total opposite, <laughs> total opposite, uh, total opposite uh, to Jarier. Yeah, he liked to be with the crew all the time, going down the pub or whatever it was, uh, in the garage at night at the race meetings. He wouldn't go home. He couldn't say, piss off back to the hotel. He wouldn't go, that sort of thing. Uh, he was that type of bloke. Uh, and, yeah, just a superman, really. Lovely. Um, fantastic flair. Cool. Yeah. His car controls. Yeah, yeah he, learned, he told me he learnt it driving his minivan in Wales. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> uh, around those twisty lanes in the rain I suppose you gotta have quick reactions but yeah he, um, he just went quick uh, that was it and he wasn't demanding at all not at all.
1: Okay let's take let's, uh, let's go back to um, a couple of questions this one comes from Paolo I don't know Paolo who but anyway Paolo um, and it's taking us swapping again back to sports cars um, in which you, of course, were also extremely successful. And he's, he's asking, sh- should they go back to full ground effect aerodynamics? Because he says the current crop of these LMP1 cars look more like single-seaters with bumpers and a roof.
0: Yeah, I think the current Le Mans regulations are ridiculous. In, I what, mean, in what sense, Tony? Well, well as you say, the, the, the cockpit, look, is a single-seater cockpit. There's no question being two-seaters. I mean, it's either, if it's a sports car, it's got to have two seats, minimum. And it's got to look a bit like a sports car. Yes. These things look like weirdos. And as for that stupid great fin to stop them flipping over, I mean, what a load of crap that is. <laughs> but anyway, the FIA stipulate you've got to have that. I didn't have any problems with my cars, and I've done a lot of sports cars. Yeah, know, yeah. Okay, in the early days, Lola's flipped over, but everybody flipped over because they didn't know what to do. But once you twigged that arrows make uh, the aerodynamics makes quite a difference, you concentrate on it and they, it was quite easy at Le Mans you, there's no way you let the nose get up he laid that to people like Mercedes you remember the year they, they flew through I was there and they they fl- flipped three times it's three different cars yeah. and but it's quite easy you went up to the car the car was set basically horizontal and they were chasing grip because they got terrific traction off the corners and bloody well, how hell how'd they do that but they'd be running soft springs and running it squat to the rear so that as the car accelerated it literally squatted down and the rear would be lower than the front and as a result the nose is high and as you go up speed that nose didn't come down because the the rear wing pushes the back down so the result was they go down the straight at best level uh, worst slightly nose eye which is kiss of death and where they took off they were going over some curbs uh, which would unload the front it was already very very light and it, they just, once, once you get uh, air on the front, those things just fly. And I remember that the first time it happened, I was with Audi at the time. Uh, our cars were instrumentated, so we knew what downforce the car had on the circuit. Uh, which is a bit cheating really, isn't it? But, uh, I mean, it's commonplace now, of course. It's very Audi. Yeah, but, so we immediately hit the button and said, well, at that corner, how much downforce we got? And we still had 30% on the front, which was quite a respectable figure. I mean, the car started with 40. Or could be if you wanted, so we were okay. But the Mercedes obviously was right on the knockings. That yeah, to me that was obvious. You didn't have to go up and work it out. I could just see it. But unfortunately, Mercedes apparently they told the engineers they could change anything as long as the car didn't go slower,
1: which takes a bit of doing. They were lucky not to lose a driver, actually, weren't they? they?
0: Amazing. Amazing, Alan, when you see the films. Amazing. But that, uh, uh, so that type of car, uh, I suppose if if you say, well, if Mercedes couldn't get it right then, just going back a few years, of course, uh, what chance the rest? Uh, Okay, so you could have some regulations that perhaps prevented that, a pitch of a car or something of that nature where they never get the nose in the air. Um, but they are very, p- quite pitch sensitive because a big flat area, and I started where we had no restrictions on, on aero, and later on uh, it was restricted, and obviously the cars with more aero are safer, because you, you can control it, you can put it where you want it, and, and you have so much that uh, you'd have hell of a job to, to disrupt disrupt it.
1: The, the big problem is, as, uh, the, uh, as you d- describe those fins on these cars, is it, is, is what it, it ends up with all the cars looking exactly the same as each other, which I always think is disappointing in all forms of motor racing, isn't
0: it? Unfortunately, you've got that. I mean, uh, you paint them all the same color and you'd have a j- hell of a job knowing who, which is which. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, well, that's the situation we're in because... Uh, regulations, you could change that a bit say, like we're talking about Formula 1, if you just say no front wing, uh, you could have a variety of different shapes and configurations, which perhaps like you did in the old 70s and 80s, yeah. where they could s- produce similar lap tires. so you would have differences. Um, yeah. But uh, and, and same with the sports cars, you could do the same, but I don't think the likes of Mercedes and Audi and whatnot, Porsche, would be too interested. They like the high-tech, because it's a platform for them, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, look at look what we can do,
1: mm. yes, and also then apparently we can if we 've got enough money, we can go and buy one on the road well, and <laughs> <a problem that's
0: laughs> yes <better>. yeah um because <laughs> yeah, hybrids are common yeah. aren't they so that uh, uh I can understand why they do it, sure. but it doesn't make for good racing
1: here's a here's a uh, an odd one, an odd one to me because I have not read your book tut tut, but I'm going to now because i 'm I'm intrigued by it all, but uh, Chris Jenkins uh, once says that you you owned or built or raced a silver. Simon probably knows about this because Simon's an encyclopedia. By the in case you didn't know, but anyway, um, at some point, is this right? Is this right? Yes. R- ah, okay. When I yeah when
0: I retired or stopped uh, racing, and I started working in racing, that is, uh, 2000, the year 2000. I shouldn't actually stop there, but I was so bloody knackered. I, <laughs> I just. I thought I'd recover, but I didn't. Anyway, I, um, I bought a, a silver from Jeremy Phillips, who makes them up in North Lincolnshire. Uh, it's a sort of like a catering-type car with a sports body on it. Uh, because this was a class in the 750 Club, and I was tied up with the 750 Club, so I wanted to uh, 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 join in. And, uh, but he built it. I didn't build it. I just went along and gave him a cheque. And it, it was there and all Must awesome. have made a nice change, actually. It's nice, and shiny, uh, brand new, and uh, cost of course, Peanuts, by my standard, the world, the world I come from. And I raced that for about eight years, seven, eight years. And uh, great fun. I'm not a driver at all, but I could go round and round and join in. And, uh, yes, yeah, great fun. You certainly, certainly appreciated how good professional drivers are, of course. The Insight when you you do that. Is going to ask you a question <laughs> now, Well, no,
2: just, it's, it's quite nice to see the wheel turning full circle like that I mean you kind of cut your teeth at the 750 Motor yeah. Club and but, I mean Adrian Reynolds done a similar thing he's built he's yeah. gone back to building himself sports cars years after he was a mainstream car manufacturer and um, he's, he's doing likewise I talked me into doing that oh, no, that's your
0: he right. blames me the, uh, no, no. Uh, yeah, he came along there was a test day at Silverstone and I was in my silver thing and I, I got a little bit of trouble actually and I was fiddling with it and he came up to me because he was there and he got a catering I think and he was having a whiz round uh, just uh, general practice. He wasn't racing. i was just uh, a track day, and he he came up and started looking at it and, and he was quite fascinated that I was doing this, and I said, oh, yeah, i do that, and I may change it a little bit. No, only personalize it, not uh, the main thing uh, changed, uh, the, the structure or the suspension or anything, uh, just set up. And I said, yeah, you want it. It's great fun. So... Uh, but he fancied the bike, because within 750 Club, we've got lots the road of The road-going bike. The road-going bikes there's uh, uh, two bike formulas, and the road-going bike attracted him, where he used a motorcycle engine, which is very cheap, uh, relatively cheap and very light horsepower. And uh, so he fancied one. So he went out and bought one just to get a feel for it and drove it, and then uh, then he designed and made one. <laughs> and he's still doing it.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: As you do. Mm. I think I think it's great I mean it, uh, f- having having designed so many great cars for so many great racing drivers you then go and do it yourself and it's probably not as easy as it looks is
0: it the driving isn't no, that's for sure uh, because uh, uh, now and again other people will drive my car friends uh, one of them is a, a good call club, club race in historic he wins all these former Junior races John Milicevic and he got in the car and he did three laps around Silverstone and went one half seconds quicker <laughs> and he'd never been in the car and I said that's enough <laughs> and, and, so um, it just shows you how far off the pace I was
2: have you ever seen John taking his Formula Junior through Hall Benz at Cadwell it's just one of the best no, sites no. in national motor it's fantastic yeah, yeah. it's just brilliant yeah, well, yeah, I recommend it next time he's up there I,
0: I've seen him locally yeah, like Silverstone a lot but uh, um, yeah, he's, he's actually a very talented driver mm. uh, but I mean he's uh, like many uh, what you call club racer, they're they're very close to being uh, potentially professional. Sure. Um,
1: we're running out of time, which is sad because because it's very entertaining. Um, but we can't finish without talking about Jaguar and Tom Walkinshaw. Um, for one reason, well, for lots of reasons actually. But but um, how how did it, it? It must have been amazing to win to win remembering the fact that they wouldn't even give you an apprenticeship all those years before i mean did that must have given you a little smile of satisfaction apart from the win, of course.
0: oh yes that was a, a very very pleasing feeling yes uh i was very uh when the job, job came up uh, roger silman who's team manager of the twr he found me we, we know him from all the shadow days Yeah. Uh, he was at shadow for a long time and then he went to Uh, March and so we're we're all sort of buddies and he uh, he knew Tom wanted to make his own car and uh, he knew I was uh, available or potentially available and I was just finished the Ford rally project so uh, he just phoned me up and when he told me what it was, was the Jaguar Le Mans Group C car, he said are you interested it took me about a microsecond to say yes (laughs) And uh, because to me, uh, you know, it was—you uh, couldn't ask for better. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's very, uh, uh, very interesting period. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, s- most memorable and enjoyable in the sports car. I did a lot of sports cars, that was definitely the, uh, the the good bit. The only trouble is, because, uh, he got groups. He got too successful, and they nobbled it
1: basically mm. at the end. What was Walkinshaw like to work with?
0: Uh, well I suppose you get what you see, uh, he, uh, for me it was no problem, he just let me get on with it and if you say you want anything he would appear, he um, was a tough character. but he didn't give me a hard time at all, uh, uh, he, he, he was very much in charge, you know at the race tracks and telling people what to do and what sort of the, the drivers and things because obviously, he being a driver himself, he knew what it was all about. Um, but I had no problem with him at all. Uh, no, no, None at all. He's, uh, I know a lot of people don't like him or didn't like him.
1: When you talk to the guys who drove that car, they rave about it. And I want—I often wonder, with in somebody in a job like yours, is, do you always know why? You managed to produce just this this one great racing car. I mean, d- I mean, did you did you always think this is going to be? I've I've got it here. This is going to be fantastic.
0: Um, well start with uh, Tom. Just said to me, he when uh, when we do a car, he wanted to be all modern, you know, like a Formula One car. Well, not literally a Formula One. Car, he meant modern technology. So in other words, he didn't want me to turn up with a tubeless space frame, what have you. Mm, okay. uh, uh, which it, I wouldn't have anyway, sure. but uh, so he, he just said that. So that um, it meant that he was it used all carbon technologies like carbon chassis, carbon body weight, or Kevlar bodywork, and later carbon. Uh, uh, and it had a lot of wind tunnel testing, although the models were quite small in those days, it was still, compared to the opposition, uh, pretty damn good because we we're, were running on rolling roads, which of course Porsche didn't even have. Uh, and I looked at the Porsche and just said, well, what, what's the weak area of a Porsche? I mean, Porsche was winning everything. They'd won everything. It was so, so boring. You knew they're going to come first, second, third, God knows what. Well. well, how do we beat this? It's certainly non-reliability. Um, uh, I looked, I thought, well, that aero doesn't look good to me. Because you can tell just looking at shapes, whether they're good. I mean, it looked clean and nice. And I thought, the front end looked very weak and a sports car needs a very strong front end a lot of downforce so you can then play around with the balance of the car and tune it so it turns in quick which is essential and uh, I thought well that's a weak link there Uh, the other thing was it had got a fairly old medieval chassis frame you know just a simple aluminium tub which would be uh, stiffness of rice pudding sort of thing so I thought well we can easily blow it off there because we get a really good carbon chassis uh, which would be super rigid um it means the suspension will work better the feedback will be better and then i thought well when we got the suspension we'll go really uh, try to get um, very good wheel control so damper movement was like one to one minimum uh, whereas most cars like 0.6 could only move 0.6 of the wheel movement that was typical and uh, so you had more control all the time uh but the aero was uh I knew exactly what we got. Yeah, I knew what horsepower we got. The only, oh, the only condition was I had to use the V12 engine, yeah. which is a massive engine. Yeah, I'd yeah. never seen engines that big. And, and it was colossal. And I was a bit worried about that because it was so heavy and big, it was going to dominate the car. So I <laughs> stuffed it well forwards, right up by the driver's shoulder. And we had to a quite a long bell housing to get the weight forward. And the weight came out fine, so that was all right. And uh, the... Uh, uh, but the I knew the power available because we had good horsepower 740. We got up to one stage at the end. Uh, I'd got to get down the straight quicker than anybody else. About 240 miles an hour was the bracket in those days because we didn't have chicanes initially. And so uh, I just worked and worked away in the winter until he got it. And once I got he could do consistently 240 and I got still got acceptable downforce, not a lot of downforce. Um uh, in sprint form, you could double the downforce quite easily, but you don't need that, Le Mans. You've got to get down those straights quick. Uh, and as soon as I'd done that, uh, I knew that the car was basically a winning package. You just got to m- make it and test it and whatnot. And uh, so, when in '88, we, I know we, we knew reliability was going to be a big problem, so it took us three years to get it reliable. Uh, gearbox is the main trouble. See, we had a modern paddle shifting which came a little later uh, that had dramatically changed the the Jaguar position we had a lot of gearbox failure yeah. and you get a 50% increase in life immediately going to paddle shifts yeah. 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 but uh, anyway it didn't exist then so uh, uh, I knew yeah I expected it to be good uh, and so when when actually Lammers overtook Stuck in that's in 88 that's the year we won the first year we won when he overtook on the Molson straight and he actually waved to Stuck as he went by. Uh, you heard that story, that's genuine. Yeah, because Stuck came up to me, he says, that cheeky bug." he says, at the end of it, he says, was he passed me, he waved. <laughs> like this, because he, you can't do anything. He just slipped out of the slipstream, <laughs> went by him. And I saw it on TV, because watching in the, in the garage, you see it on the monitor. As soon as I saw that, I thought, that's it. All those bloody years of working in the, in the flaming winter and hours and hours and hours had paid off. There it just went, Phew! and it, of course, it would do it every lap, easily. You just sat there and hang on. bit terrified hang on, mind you. But, uh, I remember Eddie Cheever, first time he we went down, flat out. He said, he's, he said, he was hanging on the steering wheel so, so, so tight. He says, I reckon my w- knuckles were white.
1: <laughs> it's bloody fast. Yeah. 240 yeah. is bloody yeah. fast in yeah. anything. And it's
0: it? a long time you're doing it. Yeah. I think we're on full throttle for 63 seconds. I mean, that's, you stand next to a diner when the engines are running. 63 seconds is a hell of a long time.
1: And, well, especially when it's on your shoulder. Yes.
0: <laughs> Terrifying. When you think back, you start thinking it you think, that's mad, mad. What do you do that for? <laughs> I don't know.
1: Huh. Well, great. As it, says, uh, as it says on the front of your, your book, uh, the autobiography of one of motorsport's most prolific and versatile racing car designers. And we've only scratched the surface, but thank you so much. And thank you for coffee, biscuits and having us in your home it's been tremendous Won't anyone like to bring anything else up
2: before we go i just um we've talked about some of the successful projects you're involved with you were involved <laughs> with the seller for a while weren't you
0: oh yes that was uh uh yeah. funny uh, well, because i i um i got a phone call from ferrari from uh the lawyer what's his name piccinini piccinini yes he was the the legal man. And uh, he was very involved in the team. He was always at the race meetings and whatnot, but he always knew he's a bit tricky. You know, he's the lawyer, better watch it. Uh, and anyway, he phoned me up. And I thought, what the hell was he phoning me for? And he says, I, I've been asked to phone you uh, about uh, on behalf of Fry I said, what for? And he says, well, we got a friend of ours, Enzo Asella, uh, who wants some help to get, uh, he needs a... Um, to get a contract with uh, with Alfa Romeo for a turbo engine or something. And, and he's got to prove to them that he's worth it or something. So he said, uh, can you make a new car for him? And I thought, oh. I thought I was rather curious of that. And I was doing other things at the time. And, and he only wanted a chassis. I hadn't got to do anything else. So I went down there. He got a fantastic setup in Italy. I was a bloody amain, Much better than what people have over here. Obviously, he all the sponsors money on, on workshops. And he had, His Workshop was so big, he just drove the truck into it, and he had his own little test track adjoining it. Anyway, uh, the uh, so I made this chassis, John Thompson made it up the road. It was actually a very nice, neat little chassis. There's quite a few photographs in the book about it because there's one of the cars I can actually photograph and not get uh taken to court. So, uh, you've been been there enough times, you'll notice there's not many photographs of of, uh, shadows and arrows in there. Well, there are only normal photographs, not not what you call technical photos um, and uh, so there's quite a few shots and yeah, it was quite a neat package and it worked and he went out and they were quicker than the old Alfa Romeo works car with the same engine it had a V12 engine and it had uh, it was oozing with titanium I remember the engine and gearbox God did they spend some money <laughs> boy
1: and Ginzani drove it didn't he
0: yes and uh, and
1: Yeah, Fabi
0: yeah right. of and uh, yeah so I, I, I went on to a few races with them and it was great because it was like a big Italian family, incredibly different to the British teams. You know, everything stopped for dinner. You know, at the end of the race, first thing at practice, first thing you did was have dinner. And that would take an hour and a half, say. And by the time you finished dinner, you could see all the other mechanics, half of them were going home. And they used to go by and wave, say, (laughs) say, we haven't started yet. (laughs) (laughs) But very different. Yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, good stuff. Well remembered, Simon. Okay. Um, Well, it is time for us to go, but we'll be back uh, next month. Uh, with another Motorsport Magazine podcast. And um, my my editor, Ed Foster, is nodding at me furiously. So yes, we definitely will be. And I know, In fact, we've got two more lined up. I know that because um, I'm trying to remember when they are. Tom Christensen, that'll be a great one. Yeah, yeah, what a guy. And um, and McGuinness, the motorcyclist, of course. Mr. TT, Mr. Isle of Man. Okay, anyway, we're not going there now. Thank you very much indeed, Tony Southgate. And just to remind you, his book is called From Drawing Board two checkered flag it's published by mrp which i imagine stands for motor racing publications does it yeah good okay um, so thanks everybody very much for listening it's goodbye from simon aaron goodbye from nigel Roebuck goodbye from ed foster and goodbye from me see you next time